And that was the moment, right? Where I realized all that stuff made a difference. Like you're not always sure if what you're doing and teaching people and trying to encourage people and all that kind of stuff. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Dr. Katherine Kimball Ayers to War Docs. Colonel Kimball Ayers is an Army pediatrician and currently serves as the Commandant of the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, as well as the Pediatric Consultant to the Army Surgeon General. She has deployed twice as a battalion surgeon, first to Iraq in 2006 and second to Kuwait in 2015. You can read Dr. Kimball Ayers' full bio on our website, wardocspodcast.com. Well, welcome to Wardocs. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Got Dr. Catherine Kimball Ayers on tonight, and thank you for joining us. I'm excited to be here. So tell us, what led you to become a military physician? You know, I had an interesting story in that I grew up a military brat, and I actually grew up the daughter of military physicians, and I do use that plurally. Um, my parents actually met at the University of Virginia Medical School. My mom was one of three women in her class. And my dad did ROTC through college. The HPSP scholarship didn't exist then. So the army paid for him to go to medical school sort of as an early HPSP. And so he knew he was gonna train in the army at that point. And so my mom joined the army to be able to train with my dad because there weren't a ton of opportunities for women to train then. And so she was in the army initially and trained with the military, but that was at a time where you weren't allowed to be a woman and have children. So my mom was actually medically discharged when she delivered my sister. So my mom's considered a disabled veteran. Soon after that, they did have the suit that overturned that decision. And so later on, she served in the reserve. So I grew up in the Army Medical Corps as part of my life and sort of always knew it was going to be there and really actually didn't think I was going to do anything that my parents did. I was actually going to do the opposite. I was going to be a psychologist. But as I progressed in college, and did different stuff, I realized that medicine was actually where I wanted to be. I figured my parents had already done a lot to put me through college and I wanted to find a way to put myself through medical school. And, you know, the Army was very familiar to me. So I ended up applying to USU and getting in and, and deciding that was a great way for me to, to enter medicine. And, and I really, truly thought that I was going to go to USU and train, serve my time and get out. And here I am 20, six years later still serving. So it has truly been a ride. We know that you trained in pediatrics. Why does the military have pediatricians and why do we train people in pediatrics? It's so important to talk about that. I think that's a question that I get so often when people are like, oh, what do you do in the Army? Oh, I'm a pediatrician. Oh, the Army has pediatricians? Yes, they do. I think there's two really big reasons to understand why the Army needs pediatricians. The first is that the active duty military health system, not in counting the National Guard or the Reserve, have well over 1 million dependent children that are somewhere in our system. And 40% of those are under age five. Now, our family medicine colleagues 
are awesome and are very capable of taking care of kids. But that far outstrips, A, their capability. And you can well imagine that within that 1 million children, there are kids that just have a higher need than your family medicine primary care provider is able to take care of. So pediatricians are well posed and placed in order to help really provide care and be able to keep soldiers, sailors, airmen, all the uniformed personnel in place so that they don't have to go elsewhere to get care for their kids, right? They get care where they are, even if it's super remote, like Guam or Fort Irwin, California. So that's a reason to have the pediatricians in the in the military. The other reason that's really important, and I talk about all the time, is that 50% of the Army is under age 25. Now, if you think about that and you realize that 50% of your fighting force is under age 25, and the people that get the most training in that age group is your pediatrician. Our adolescent training is you know, well and above most of the others. We are very familiar with that population, both their risks and how to take care of them. And so we're very well positioned to do active duty soldier care for the average soldier. So where is a pediatrician best served on the battlefield? So the pediatricians serve in a variety of different roles. Honestly, the main role that particularly in the army that general pediatricians and some specialists serve is in what we call that battalion surgeon, brigade surgeon, sort of sort of the general medical officer role. So with the forward line units as one of their docs taking care of the troops. We also often, not often, I, let me rephrase that. We also will sometimes have um, pediatricians at the higher level of care. We call them, you know, sort of the combat surgical hospitals, those kind of places, because what we found, so in Afghanistan, when they did one of their surveys, one of the top three age groups, you know, that was in and diagnoses in the intensive care unit at Bagram was pediatric patients. And so they rapidly found that they needed a pediatrician to be able to help their intensive care specialists take care of those kids because unfortunately kids are not little adults and they do have special needs that have to be attended to and, and different ways that they need to be treated. So there have often been a request for pediatricians to at least one or two of them be at those surgical hospitals, at those combat hospitals in order to help take care of locally wounded children or other care young kids that come through that need care. So when pediatricians aren't deployed, is there much of a difference between the practice of a civilian pediatrician and a military pediatrician? Oh, that's a really great question. In general, I would say no. I think our standards of care, our levels of care are all the same. I think the difference becomes sort of where you practice. I was actually just having this discussion with a colleague who spent 12 years in the Navy as a general pediatrician, and now she is out providing care in a civilian tertiary children's center. And what she's noticed is that the difference is, is that she's used to practicing in a much more austere environment, right? As a, as a Navy general pediatrician, true for the Army, true for the Air Force, there are often places that you end up that your subspecialists are not super close. And so you learn to do a lot more triage and a lot more basic investigation. Whereas in the more tertiary level places, they have a pediatric cardiologist just down the, the hall. And that's true here, you know, in the national capital region too. And so, you know, 
you know, that's not necessarily dependent on them to really do the, the same level of investigation because they know they're going to call the cardiologist anyways, and they can come down and do an echo. So it's not necessarily a different level of care. I think it's just a different approach. I don't think that's necessarily different for a civilian pediatrician who's in an austere environment either. It's just they're a little less likely to be in an austere environment, I think, than the military pediatricians are. So we know that pediatricians are still being deployed today, even when there's a lower op tempo. How do we know that the pediatricians are ready to go and prepared for what they're going to see when they deploy today? There's two pieces to that that I found when I deployed. And one is that actually, as much as we think of deployment as trauma and high tempo operations, my experience is that it's a whole lot of day-to-day sick call punctuated with some excitement. But overall, you know, many, many people find that on deployments, it's it's a lot of the routine sick call stuff. So, and, and what I mean by routine sick call is, you know, routine primary care clinic, sniffles, injured shoulder, headache, et cetera, et cetera, my back. And so, you know, the general pediatricians are certainly very well prepared in terms of one of the major things they do is outpatient clinic on a regular basis. But certainly in terms of the stuff that I think we more directly associate with deployment, the trauma, those kind of things, they all get training in, in all our training programs. And that's the advantage of, of training our pediatricians in the military is then we know that they get that extra training about how to be a military physician and that being able to go to the combat casualty care course, or if they graduate from USU going to Bushmaster or things like that, they have that extra level of training to be able to deal with the trauma so that when they get TC3, it's not a new thing for them right before they deploy. And it sort of is a tune-up as they're rolling out the door to go to deployment. So when you finished your residency, what was your first assignment? And did you feel that you were prepared for that? Yeah, my first assignment was as a general pediatrician in Fort Hood, Texas. And let me tell you, there's no place better to go to cement your skills as a general pediatrician. And we have a, we have some good places that are very similar. But when you're doing, you know, 250 to 350 deliveries a month and you have 40,000 dependent kids to take care of, there was plenty to do as a general pediatrician. I absolutely felt prepared. I trained in San Antonio at the San Antonio Uniform Services Health Education Consortium. But for from I trained in South Shack and I absolutely was ready to be a general pediatrician in an austere environment. While, yes, we had subspecialists just down the road in San Antonio or just down the road in Austin, we still need to be able to stabilize and evaluate. And, you know, I I, um, certainly had several times where kids showed up in our ER and it was a big surprise or they showed up in our delivery room and we needed to be able to take care of those babies and stabilize them until we could get them or those kids until we could get them somewhere that they could get definitive care. And I absolutely felt extremely ready for that and was so grateful for the training that I had gotten when I was down in San Antonio. So when you were deployed, um, tell us a little bit about the experiences that you had or anything memorable that comes to mind from any of your deployments. Yes, I've deployed twice. My first deployment was to Iraq in 2006 to 2007. 
And my second deployment was, I call it more of a prolonged temporary duty in Kuwait. And I was very lucky. I was only there for about four and a half months. And that was in 2015. So probably my first deployment is much more memorable and, and, and sort of, I think, represented a little more of what people think of when, when you say you've deployed. We were in South Central Iraq at the tip of the Sunni Triangle in the midst of pretty deadly time, what ended up being the surge that came in while we were there. And I think what I remember most is the opportunity to really work with those around me and bond with those around me and have those relationships that have lasted to this day and to be able to influence folks. So, you know, we had a significant number of, of young medics that worked with us. And while we were there, we would do, you know, in downtime, we would do classes for those medics and we would work with them and teach them as we were doing stuff and teach them as we were doing traumas or as we were seeing sick call or anything. And we really developed a very close relationship and worked hard to develop our medics and help them start to learn and grow and, and move into different directions. And fast forward a couple of years ago, I was sitting down in the pediatrics clinic and I was precepting and one of the neurology interns sat down to precept with me and I introduced myself and he said, ma'am, you actually know me. I know you probably don't recognize me. He said, but you actually know me. I was one of your medics in Iraq, at which point I was like, oh my God, I know exactly who you are. He said, ma'am, you were the first person to teach me electrolytes. He's like, I still have my notes from that lecture. And he said, you and Doc Bush, who was one of the other, uh, he was a GMO with us on that deployment. He's like, you told me I could do this. You told me I could go to medical school. So I did. He's like, I finished my degree. I went to USU. He's like, ma'am, I graduated last year and now I'm a neurology intern. So thanks. Right. And I was like, and that was the moment, right, where I realized all that stuff made a difference. Like, you're not always sure if what you're doing and teaching people and trying to encourage people and all that kind of stuff. You really, that simple little lecture about electrolytes, trust me, I'm not that smart about electrolytes, but that simple little lecture about electrolytes made a difference and made an impression. So those, it's the people I think that I, that I remember and have the most positive memories about from my deployment. Although certainly there was a lot more that went on in those 14 months. Is there anything you know now that you wish you had known before that first deployment? Realize that the subject matter expert may be somebody that you outrank and maybe, you know, quote unquote, have more experience than, but your medic or your specialist or your platoon sergeant or, you know, the PA, they may really have more knowledge and information and you need to take the step back and listen to what they're saying. I think there was definitely a couple of experiences, especially during my first deployment, where I didn't listen to those voices as much as I probably should have. Right. And I kind of ended up making some decisions that just weren't the best. Really, to me, it was because I didn't listen to the people that were saying, hey, ma'am, I don't think that's a great decision for these reasons. And I was like, oh, it'll be fine. But I didn't take that step back and recognize that, that they had more experience in that area than I did. It didn't matter that I had more rank. They had more experience and thought. And if I had just kind of taken the step back and waited and thought about it, maybe I wouldn't have changed my decision, but I might've really understood and, and thought more about why I was doing what I was doing and might've approached it differently. Do you have any memorable clinical cases from deployment that just stand out in your memory? 
Yeah, I do. I have one that I have never, ever forgotten. So we had a medevac unit, so the helicopter unit that helps carry our patients in and out that had come and been stationed with us on our forward operating base. And one of the pilots came in and had cough and just wasn't looking great. And we did have the ability to get an x-ray because we were a level two. And so we did an x-ray and it definitely looked like he had a pneumonia. So I was helping the PA manage him, but the, the RPA and our other doc were primarily managing him, but he just, he wasn't getting better. And so we repeated his x-ray and I looked at his x-ray and I thought about his symptoms. And all of a sudden I thought about one of my infectious disease colleagues had sent me this article about what diseases they had been seeing more coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And on there, had they, sh- they had talked about Q fever. And I all of a sudden I looked at him and I looked at his x-ray and I thought about the symptoms he was having. I said, I think you might have Q fever. Like, I don't think you should stay here. I think we need to get you out. Like something doesn't like the x-ray just looked weird and all that kind of stuff. So we ended up shipping him up to the combat surgical hospital in Baghdad. And they actually ended up sending him to launch stool. And I never saw him again because he didn't come back for a while. And then we um, we redeployed back to the United States before he ended up coming back. But again, life is weird in the Army. Fast forward about two years, and I'm now stationed at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And I was walking down the hall, and I saw this guy. I saw the pilot, and he recognized me right away. I recognized him, and so we stopped, and we were talking, and how he, oh, I'm doing great, ma'am. Thank you so much. I feel, you know, I recovered, and I said, well, what did they say you had? He's like, oh no, they totally agreed with you. It was definitely Q fever. And I was like, yay, the general pediatrician diagnosed Q fever. I was so proud of myself. And I was so grateful that my colleague had sent me that article so that I could actually like piece it all together. He's like, no, ma'am, they absolutely agreed with you. They, they said it was Q fever and they treated me and I'm all better. And I was back, you know, in theater within about six weeks. You just weren't there to see me. And I was like, sorry, I wanted to go home. Um, but it was a great feeling to actually be able to pick up on, you know, those that weird constellation of symptoms. So tell us about any training opportunities or humanitarian missions you've been able to participate in as a military pediatrician. I have had the joy, the absolute joy of going to the training centers three different times. I have gone to uh, the Joint Readiness Training Center, or JRTC, down at Fort Polk twice and I've gone out to the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, California once. And I feel like those are experiences have almost been worse than the deployments themselves. I think just the way they set up the experiences, are they're hard. They're meant to challenge the units. But what was interesting to me about my second training center experience, and I'm grateful it happened to be that my first one and my third one, my first JRTC and my my NTC experience were were both ended up with being with units that I deployed with. But my second one was a unit that I was just on global recall with. So we were training, but, you know, I never deployed with them. And I have to tell you, I was grateful because what was fascinating to me having, you know, had in the end those three experiences and looking back was being able to realize that I, I had an example of some really poor leadership and some really challenged leadership and seeing the difference in the training center experience and watching how the units functioned 
in two very highly effective units that I went with, and then one maybe not so highly effective unit. And getting the chance, I think, to have that leadership lesson and learn about how that difference in leadership can make such a difference in your unit and your ability for your unit to function on a daily basis. Looking back over 26 years, is there any best save that you had as a military physician that just comes to mind? Yeah, I was general pediatrician at Fort Hood. And honestly, I will say the save is really due to the nurse, but I was on call and we had a level two NICU at Fort Hood because we did have a neonatologist that was with us. And we had a little baby that was, you know, she's a premature infant, but she was what we called a feeder and a grower. She was hanging out, learning how to breathe and learning how to eat. There wasn't so much that was complicated about her, but it was about midnight, one o'clock in the morning. I had finally gotten to lay down and rest. And one of the nurses called me and she said, Catherine, I need you to just come look at this baby. I'm not, I just, it's probably okay. And I'm sorry I woke you up, but I just, I need you to come look. I said, okay, I'll come look. So I come down and I look at her and, and I agreed. I was like, yeah, I, I don't know. Something doesn't look right. Like she just, she wasn't reacting the same way. Like she just didn't look right. So I was like, all right, well, let's just, let's work her up. Let's do it. You know? So we, we got blood cultures and urine cultures. We did a lumbar puncture. I started her on antibiotics. I called the neonatologist at home. I said, Hey, this is what I'm doing. Is there anything else you want me to do? She's like, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for doing that. Maybe just change this one antibiotic. I said, no problem. I changed that antibiotic. About five hours later, I was walking out of the hospital post-call and the neonatologist called me while I was in the parking lot. And she said, hey, I need you to know that you saved that baby's life. She has E. coli meningitis. It just grew out in five hours and we're shipping her down to San Antonio. I'm so glad that you did that workup because if we had left her for a few more hours, she'd be dead. There's no way she would have survived this. And A, I mean, yes, that makes you feel good that you did the right thing. But B, I was... Just more grateful that I, that A, I had a really good nurse on and that I was willing to listen to her and listen to her instinct that something didn't look right and to do the right thing. So you're the consultant for pediatrics to the U.S. Army Surgeon General. What are the biggest current challenges for military pediatricians? I think our big challenge is not necessarily a new challenge, but it's helping leadership. It's helping everybody understand the role of the pediatrician in the military and that it's, it is vital that we have uniform pediatricians and that we are a vital member of the fighting force, both for dependents and for active duty soldiers. And so continuing to help folks realize the way we contribute to the mission and the importance of having us in uniform, that civilian pediatricians are vital and do a, an amazing job and a really important role, but it's not the same as having someone in uniform that can serve in a variety of different positions and support the mission in a variety of different ways. So I was reading your bio and I see that you're the Uniformed Services University Commandant. What is that and what does a Commandant do? So the Commandant at the Uniformed Services University is the military officer in charge of, um, for my role, the medical students, graduate students, and what we call our Enlisted to Medical Degree Program, preparatory program, which is a specialized program for 
um, those that are currently active duty enlisted to do a post-baccalaureate program in preparation to get accepted to medical school. So I have about just over 800 students that I, with company commanders from each of the services and a, a company commander for my graduate education, along with the senior enlisted advisors, help me supervise and do all the military administrative work that has to be done when you're in uniform. So simple stuff, keeping track of them, making sure they're, you know, where they are when they're supposed to be, your analysis, physical fitness stuff, keeping their personnel paperwork in check, all those kind of things is what I and my team do for the students. And then if they get in trouble, they have to deal with us. So what is the USU mission, the uniqueness, and why should it be funded? So our Uniformed Services University is there um, learning to care for those in harm's way. And the major thing, you know, the Uniformed Services University was founded to, you know, be sort of the academy for military medical professionals. And really, it is our pipeline of military medical professionals who are better prepared and educated and ready to serve on all different levels throughout the military health system. HPSB and civilian medical schools absolutely prepare our students uh, to be incredible physicians. What USU does is it gives them that extra level of training through classes spread out over the four years through the facts that we do commandants call every month and give them officer professional development that they get summer operational experience that they got all kinds of extra training that that our our health professional scholarship program students aren't aren't able to get over their four years to help just prepare them that extra level to be able to serve not just as medical professionals, but military medical professionals and have that extra leadership training to be able to continue to serve and provide a base of military leadership in the medical system. I think another interesting title that I saw in your CV that I want to hear more about is chief experience officer. That sounds like something that would be really, really important, but haven't seen it very often. What is that and what do they do? You know, this was one of those opportunities that I think is a great example of why military medicine is so much fun and I've stayed in. So uh, as I was serving at Walter Reed, I was in a leadership position at the time called the Deputy Director for Medical Services. And there became an opportunity. One of the senior leaders, Rear Admiral David Lane, really was interested in, in sort of creating this position at Walter Reed as someone who would be focused on not just the patient's experience, but the staff experience. Because what we're learning, and, and this is true throughout the civilian medical institutions too, is that if we don't care, take care of our staff, they can't take care of the patients. And so he was really focused and asked me if I would take on this role as the chief experience officer. So I did. So I, I, I took on the role. We developed this experience program at Walter Reed that we're slowly spreading through different parts of the military health system. And really the focus was to have sort of this dual focus. Anytime anybody talked to me, the assumption always was you want to know about the patients. You want to know about the patient experience. You want to know about what the patients are doing or how they're going through things or if we did something wrong with the patients. And certainly the patients are absolutely important. They're the center of everything that we do. But what I emphasized over and over to folks is I care about the staff. I, I want to know how are the staff doing? What are we doing for them? Have we taken care of their needs? Because what we've realized over and over again and what you're seeing spread through the civilian institutions who are doing this work also is that if we can take better care of our staff, if we can give them the tools that they need to serve, they will take care of the patient. That's why they're there. 
people don't come into medicine in any sort of healthcare to not take care of people. They don't come in saying, well, I just want to sit here and stare at the wall. It's really not why people take the job, right? They come in to serve. And so if we can give them the tools, if we can give them the the ability to take care of the patient, they'll do it. And so we really worked hard while I was establishing the program and establishing the position at Walter Reed to, to help demonstrate that. And I think we were able to really show that with that focus on listening to our staff and listening to their needs and, and trying to make those improvements, we're able to really not only change the attitudes of the staff, but actually improve our patient experience scores. And so it was, it was an amazing opportunity to really support the people that are doing the hard work every day. So you mentioned that you have a lot of trainees that you come in contact with. What advice would you give to a 20-year-old or 25-year-old that's interested in medicine and considering their military options? So the first thing I tell everybody that talks to me about medicine, whether or not they're talking about going to the military, is that I encourage them to really do this only if you really want to do it for yourself, right? If you're doing it because your mom and dad think you should be a doctor, if you're doing it because you think this is the best way to make money and be flush with money for the rest of your life or any of those things, it's going to be a rough ride because medicine is really, really hard. And there will always be times in your career that medicine is, is going to be so hard that it's going to grind on you. And if you don't have that base of passion and desire and, and joy in what you're doing, it's going to grind you right down and you're going to hate what you do. And so the first thing I say to everybody is you really have to want to do this. This has to be something that you are excited about doing and that every day you're going to wake up and say, oh gosh, I'm so excited. I get to go do patients or those kind of things so that the rest of that, you know, really tough stuff cannot get rid of that base. And then the other thing that I talk to folks about just in terms of thinking about the military medicine is there are some really incredible benefits to being in military medicine. And I have not regretted it at all, but it's not for everybody. And if understanding that you're not going to necessarily have control over every aspect of your life and that you will sometimes just have to nod your head and say, okay, I got it. And you're going to move on and do things. If that's not in your realm of being able to tolerate that or do that, then the military is probably not for you. And that's okay. So one of the purposes of this podcast is to preserve the oral history of military physicians in military medicine. A hundred years from now, your great, 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 whatever grandchildren are going to possibly listen to it. What is one thing that you'd want them to know about your career in military medicine? I was deployed. We had an incident where we were in the dining facility and I was having lunch with a couple of our female officers and all of a sudden, um, somewhere else in the dining facility, one of our soldiers started to have a seizure. So they knew who I was. They called me over. So I was taking care of the soldier and calling the aid station. I got my nurse to bring medicine, you know, I, just sort of routine stuff for me. None of it was hard and it was all pretty routine and, you know, taking care of the soldiers buddies around him and taking care of him and making sure he stayed safe, et cetera. So when we got done and we got him stabilized and we rolled him out and I talked to the two company, the two captains that I was having lunch with really briefly. And I was just about to leave. And one of them turned to me and she said, ma'am, I just need you to know that I know your kids couldn't see what you did today, but I wish they could because they would be really, really proud of you. And that just really stuck with me. 
right? Because I don't think our families get to see what, to your point, I don't think our families get to see what we do every day. But I think it's just important to know that there are so many people out there in the military health system that are doing things like that every single day. And, and there's so much that the families have to be proud of for what they're doing and, and the work that they're doing and the lives that they're saving every day. So we're recording this podcast in 2021. If you were to fast forward to 2036 or 2040, what big changes in military medicine do you think there will be that will improve battlefield medical care? I've been really amazed at some of the research that I'm seeing coming out in terms of the electronic monitoring and the technology just that they're working on, even that the soldiers, sailors, and airmen that are, that are military service members will be able to wear just within their battle armor or within their, you know, uniform and, and how we may be able to monitor and figure out that, hey, that soldier is actually going to be a heat injury much sooner than we would expect to be able to figure that out, you know, when they're passed out on the side of the road. And so I think the technology piece and the monitoring piece, and which then I think would also help in terms of just being able to do stuff from a remote place. The reality is, is that we don't, we don't have enough physicians to have a physician with every convoy out there. We have really well-trained medics and they do a great job, but to be able to, to really continue to leverage that technology, both that's on the, the service member themselves, but also that the medic can use to help us, you know, and that we can communicate with the medic. Oh, I agree with you. I see this. Yes, go ahead and do that or do this or actually get that soldier, sailor, airman back here. I think the technology is really going to help us get that next edge in terms of continuing to save lives on the battlefield. So I just want to say thanks to Dr. Catherine Kimball-Ayers for being on our show tonight. Thank you for being part of Wardock's podcast. And thank you for sharing your insights and stories. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Wardock's Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.